Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. Quick thing before we kick off, just wanted to say a big thank you to Gareth and Sam for all the work they've put in on season two of Shrapnel. It's been an unbelievable series so far, and the guys have earned a few weeks off, but they will be back in January with much more content coming your way, but I think we'll give them the fortnight off. Maybe. It's been a pleasure to work with them both, and I love working with them as part of the team on the Tortoise Shack. Now I have to ask you to help us keep going in 2024. If you listen to this series, if you listen to Reboot Republic or Echo or Glow West or Police or um, the, the second season of Musical, which is coming very soon, well then please join us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise We don't have ads, we don't have sponsors, we rely entirely on listeners to pay it forward and keep it free for everyone. So if you're one of the thousands of people who are listening, the easiest way to give something back to us is to throw us the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month on patreon.com forward slash tortoise the link is in the top of the podcast you're about to listen to thanks to everybody who listened in 2023 who shared who liked who reviewed if you haven't left a review yet go into your whatever you listen to your podcast and give us five stars give the lads five stars they worked bloody hard for it it helps other people find the podcast moves them up the charts and gives a bit more visibility but please do click the patreon link while you're listening to the podcast it would really help us all out i'm shutting up now Enjoy the pod. Hello and welcome to the Shrapnel Podcast. I'm your host as usual, Sam McElwain. And as always, my trusty foil, sidekick, partner in crime is Gareth Mulvenna. How are you doing tonight, Gareth? Not too bad, Sam. Looking forward to Christmas. Finally, it's on the horizon time off work not what's not to look forward to uh yeah it's one of those it's one of those holidays where where i work shuts down completely so there's no emails to go back to not like the other holidays you take fortnight off to go to tenerife you come back and you're snoot under um okay tonight's one i'm actually really looking forward to because well th- this gentleman i have listened to before spoke to before um and it's just one of those ones that it always sort of Gets gets my back up because I like to have the conversation with him. Um, it's Dr. Tony Novasel. He's an academic and author of Northern Ireland's Lost Opportunity. How are you doing, Tony? Doing very well, doing very well. And I have to mention to Gareth, uh, this is like the first podcast you haven't mentioned. You have to go watch Nottingham Forest. So, Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's uh that's tomorrow night um that's so, tomorrow night okay yeah so I'll, i'm yeah. pleased you won't have to rush out on the watch or miss knots for us today no it'll be tomorrow night and i've got my good friend james greer coming around he's a spurs fan um and he'll be able to gloat in my presence when we inevitably get thrashed but is he yeah. gonna bring some is he gonna bring some tissues around to dry your eyes <laughs> help, well there's plenty in the house already I, okay. I i i cry regularly sam cry regularly <laughs> i i i know man i'm a football fan myself and at some weeks you just wonder why you bother yeah um the this the first question i'm going to kick off with tony it, it is around your book we've discussed it there and to be honest it's one of those ones that I said to you beforehand, we're going to keep it. And it's the subtitle of the book, and it's the, the frustrated promise of political loyalism. And this one really irks me because I have seen it many times in just my lifetime. Never mind the ones that came before me or, or ones that were too young to remember. But I've seen it where we get into the cycle of there's promise. We see a new batch of loyalist politician or political thinking come to the fore. And then it disappears for one reason or another. And usually it's because... It serves its purpose for its its other masters as such, and then it's dropped. Does it frustrate you half as much as it frustrates me? Well, yeah, I actually had this conversation with someone when I was back in Belfast in October for a wedding, and it's looking back at the period that I, when I was researching and wrote the book, there was this incredible uh, uh, promise. You know, at that point, I, I felt like, you know, we were it, things were moving forward. Progressive loyalism was making a real inroads in like 2007. I was working on book 2006 to 13. And then it's just, you know, there was three things for me. And this, this will tie into the frustration. The Bobby Moffat killing, the flag protests, and then Brexit just sabotaged any any progressive nature that was going on. Uh uh, within loyalism and progressive politics again, got 
basically knocked over the head. And we can talk about many things that happened at that point. But it was extremely frustrating to see it happen because when I was writing the book, I was like, you know what? There's a real chance for change here. There's a real chance that this is going to have an impact. And I just remember I was in Belfast the day of the Moffat killing. I was in city center and remember hearing about it. And then the flag protests and that just changed those things. And then Brexit just changed everything. So it's frustrating because if you're right, it's a cyclical thing. When the NILP was becoming uh, the official opposition in the early 60s, and it looked like there was a chance that, you know, things would change even under O'Neill, that gets knocked on its head. The original Progressive Unionist Party from the 1930s, you know, that's the same time as the Devil Era Constitution. And what's the elections run on? They're run on, you know, Northern Ireland's position rather than bread and butter issues. And this is one of the things I was thinking of today when I was thinking about the interview is the fact that in these kind of situations, when people are moving back to bread and butter issues, for one reason or another, it goes back to identity. And the flag protests and Brexit really brought identity back to the fore as opposed to the bread and butter issues. They've been put to the side because it was more important. Well, we've got to protect our place in the union or we've got to save the flag or whatever. So that those types of things ha- uh, knock it on the head. It's, it's, yeah, as someone who did this all this research, yeah, it was incredibly frustrating to watch the last ten years. So you would have been coming to Northern Ireland from the mid seventies. I mean, so you, you didn't come into this fresh. It wasn't like something you just decided to research. You mentioned the Bobby Moffat killing there, and that's a really interesting sort of staging post in that journey. And uh, you talk about in terms of the decline of progressive loyalism. What do you think it was about the people who were around progressive loyalism at that time where the, the, they objected so strongly to what happened to Bobby Moffat, but could live with the contradiction of what the internet sang killings before that? Yeah, yeah because at that point, what was, uh, and I, I'll use an anecdote to actually explain why this, it, why this was so important. I was at a dinner party the night before with three people who were all immigrants, you know, they lived for other countries, including from one from America, who had partners who were Republicans. And uh, they were just torturing me about loyalism. And they were like going, oh, loyalism does this, loyalism, that. And I pulled out all these statistics showing that I had been working on showing how punishment beatings were down in the loyalist community and they were up in the Republican community, how shootings were down, how like the alternatives of making a difference and all these other groups. And, you know, I'm making my point. I'm going, oh, yeah, it's on the uprise. And then the next morning, and I remember the one person actually phoned me after they, they heard about the killing and they were actually almost gloating that, okay, see, I told you. And, you know, and for people like, I mean, Don Purvis was the head of the PUP at the time. I mean, she's representing like we're making all this progress. And then the shooting takes place. Well, what progress is there if they can do this in the middle of the afternoon on the shankle? And it undercut those who were trying to take it on a progressive on a, on a, on a progressive path. I'm just thinking, you know, uh, to sort of jump around a wee bit, but I think it's sure. important to address it this, this at the start. I mean, obviously, in, in recent weeks, we've had the passing of Winky Ray and his wife Liz. And the narrative around that in the media has obviously, and inevitably, I suppose, focused on his past, his role as a loyalist paramilitary. And Liz has become sort of just, you know, the, the wife of terrorist Winky Ray, the daughter of Gusty Spence. But you actually spent a lot of time with uh, Winky and Liz, and they were very generous to you when you were doing your research. Can yes. you talk about them on a human level so we can get it back to that, maybe, for people who don't know? Yeah, I mean, um, like I said, it's, this is where we get into uh, probably everybody, and I'll talk about Winky and Liz in particular, is that, as you, you're pointing out, even with your, the way you phrased the question, is loyalists are portrayed in a very different way than Republicans who've gotten active politically okay even jerry adams who many people don't like is seen okay all right here's jerry adams he's done this stuff he's a human being you know martin mcginnis was a great guy all these things you know at the end but we don't hear that i mean i actually saw the articles about winky and the telegram or the telegraph and there was one good one about him showing how the human side of him 
But a lot of it focused on the bad stuff, but didn't focus on what he had done to make the Red Hand Commando, uh, you know, uh, br- bring them to the point where they they re- literally have demobilized themselves. So on a personal level, they were very gracious. Both of them were very gracious. I sat having tea with, for a couple hours with Liz and doing an interview with her. Winky and I actually sat in his car uh, a good while because he had that tape that Roy Garland had written about that was in the that Gusty had made from inside prison. And it was the only way we could listen to it by sitting in his car and listening to the tape. I tried to record it, but it didn't it didn't come out well while we were sitting there. No, he, they, you know, we, he took me up to the Northern Ireland Supporters Club. We sat out and chatted for a good while and talked about the personal stuff that happened to them. Like, was, you know, was often, it didn't pertain specifically to what I was interviewing, but we're chatting, talking about what it was like to have to grow up in the situation where Gusty was in prison, where, in a situation where in the early 2000s, you know, Gusty and his wife get burned out of the shankle. And things, you know, just the human nature of it. And even talking about when, you know, Gusty, I wanted to interview him and he politely and very nicely turned me down. And I talked to Liz about that. And she says, that was us. She says, we were protecting him. He needed, you know, he was, his health wasn't good. And it gave us a human side where they were worried about their daddy. You know, she was worried about her daddy and the family was. And for me, you know, I remember talking to Winky, but one of the things I remember him being upset about was I think it was his son who couldn't go into the military because who when they found out his background and his father his father was um, that he was he wasn't allowed to go wasn't allowed to get it if I'm remembering this correctly he couldn't join the military because it you know on that and then just the other things you know looking at the and I've talked to other ex combatants prisoners or ex prisoners who can't get insurance, who can't, and their daily lives are impacted by, by their past. And the human cost of that, you know, in terms of some of them can't ever retire and they couldn't get jobs in the private sector, even though they were well-trained to work in the private sector. So yeah, so for Winky and Liz, they were incredibly gracious. Uh, I, have a, I have a wonderful photograph I can share with you from 2008 uh, from the John Hewitt when it was the David Irvine Foundation. I'm, I'm there with Winky. I mean, it was a great photograph. It was me, Winky, Liz, Gusty, Don Purvis, Jeanette Irvine, Gusty's other daughter, I can't remember who, Alistair Little and Louise Little, all in the same photograph together. And I mean, it's a human, it's a human picture. And I remember uh, in 2017, I came over for uh, the 10th anniversary of Davy's death, and we were at the uh, um uh, Raven Club. They had the event at Raven Club that Tim McGraw uh, did a, a stand up and they had a lot of music. And, you know, Winky at that point was really, his health was really bad. They had to actually physically carry him to the toilet when he had to go to the toilet. And and they asked me to say a few words about, you know, what I had done and, you know, Davey's background. And, you know, he came up and he came up and thanked me afterwards. You know, he came up and thanked me, even though he, he went, as he was being carried, he stopped and thanked me for the work I had done. So, yeah, I mean, this is the thing, I think the point you want to bring up here is what we tend to forget in with loyalists and people who've done what what can only be described as bad things or horrible things in some cases, they have made the point of trying to reform themselves, doing something different, doing something better, making the society better, but they don't get the same credit they would if it's coming from the other side, it coming coming from you know the Republican side, like all right, yeah, they did this. We're moving forward, and you know, like uh, Jerry Kelly being able to become a, a successful politician, that doesn't happen within the loyalist community. It just doesn't happen. And and just as a sideline to that, you know, just as it ties together with it, I'm sorry if I'm rambling here. Is the class I teach at University of Pittsburgh is specifically focused on conflict and. I do a whole two and a half hour segment of the class just on loyalism. And inevitably, every term, at least a few students ask me going, do you, this may be too personal, but do you support loyalism over, you know? So, and I said, you know what? Would you have asked that question if I was, if I was teaching, if I focused, you just, I did a cold class on, I did a whole, do a whole classes focusing on Irish Republicanism, but nobody asked me, am I a Republican? But if I did a class on loyalism, I was automatically asked, have I gone over to the other side? 
Oh, I, I yeah. know what you're talking about, Tony. I have experienced that a lot. Yeah. 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 I mean, we, I got accused know. back in 2014 of working to a police agenda. Well, I get accused of being a loyalist all the time, but uh, I wear the badge with pride. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think what you're saying there about the loyalists don't seem to be, don't be, aren't allowed to move on anymore and become become other things and, and be seen on a human level. I think the only one that ever really was, and he's lauded a lot for, was Davy Irvine. Yep. I think Davy is the only one that's allowed to transcend out of loyalism and become a useful politician, a useful person for society, where the rest are held back, you know. Davy came through at the same time as Billy Hutchison. They 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 walked the same streets. They 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 fought the same elections, but yet Billy never seemed to get the same breaks that Davy was allowed to get. Um, and that's still lauded against him. I mean, I, I've seen some of the stuff that he, he's done in recent elections, and and the vitriol that's aimed at him about what he's done in his past. Yeah, it's not aimed at anybody else as, as much as it is at Billy for some reason. And and I think that goes across the loyalist sort of circle. So when Winky has passed. I mean, they, they couldn't let the guy get buried before they started calling for different things and, and, and the, the story started rattling out. They, His wife had just passed, he's had, had passed, and they're in the family, and they have to remember that there's family members there who aren't involved, yeah. who never have, and they're not allowed to get away with it. They're, they're, they're getting hammered as well, that they're they're being linked to this this past that was no longer. And, I, and again, you brought up Winky, bring the red hand along to a place where ceasefires and transition were were norm for them. Yeah. There's a lot of credit needs to be given there to move guys who are militaristic and who are who have taken up the cause and, and know the cost that's going to come to them and bring them to a place where they no longer exist. Took a lot of movement and a lot of persuasion and a lot of conversations. And when he did it, and there's not too many people out there willing to say what what we've said about Martin, McGuinness and Thierry done bad things in the past but they moved yeah. and, we, we, we've, and we've allowed them a bit of grace for it we, we don't necessarily laud them for it but we, we allow them grace but it's not it's not given to the likes of Winky no no it was I mean and even you know, one thing uh, it's an anecdote so I, I couldn't say it's universal but I remember uh, in 2008 10 and 14 or 12 I brought students over for two weeks to Northern Ireland and we met with people from all walks of life you know and did meetings and I remember we were driving to i got a bunch of taxis we were going to meet jeanette over at the raven club in east belfast and i got to work in a taxi i'm telling the driver says well what's going on and he said well we're doing this and you know it's part of this and we're going to meet you know jeanette and he goes uh Dave irvine good man but he had blood on his hand you know so it was and this was from a, a, a someone from the unionist uh unionist background and so it was even as far as Davy had moved, and that's something part as you both well know within the, the Protestant Unionist loyalist community, is many people still see them as no better than the IRA was. That they were, if they were going to fight the war, join the RUC, join the UDR, but don't go out and put you know go out in the back alley or whatever and do what you did. Um, so, and there's in that sense, many of them were never ever forgiven by their own community. And will think, never be forgiven by their own community. Yeah, and do you think, I mean, when people are critical of loyalism, I'm particularly thinking of younger people coming through now who didn't experience the conflict, didn't experience even, you know, the agreement. And you would find people of that generation and also people of our generation as well who would say, Davy was brilliant, loyalism misses Davy. Davy's almost a lightning rod for credible loyalism, for credible progressive loyalism. But there's a lot of ignorance about the hard graft that was done behind the scenes. Now, Davey yeah. was part of that, but we've mentioned the people, Eddie Kenner, Plum, Hutchie, Flint, yeah. all these, Winky Ray you were talking about there, no matter what their pasts were, they they never get, to, they're never regarded in the same kind light as Davey for some reason. Yeah. And I, I don't understand that because it makes it very, one a, one, a very one-dimensional reading of history, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, I'll do a- a- anecdotes again, because I, I was over for a wedding that was held up in Limavati in uh, October, and it was a reception the night before the wedding, and I was being introduced by my friends who was over for their son's wedding, and people asked me, well, you know, they, I heard you wrote a book, and I just, and one thing that struck me was, 
is in talking to people, like you and I talk, Sam's here and people have read our work. Outside of what we've done, nobody knows this. Outside of people who have read our work or listened to us, nobody knows the story we've told. And it was actually at one point, the one, one person asked me, and, and it's what, this actually happened about three times that night. We had different discussions. And the one person said, well, what, what, what was your book about? I said, it was, I was looking at the, the political writings of loyalists in the 1970s into the 80s. And without a hesitation, I didn't know they could write. And then, uh, and then the, I mean, and it was often done sarcastically. And that was, you know, that happened a couple, couple more times. And they were shocked when I started laying out, you know, what, like sharing responsibility and things like this. And they just didn't know it existed. And it's outside the wheelhouse now. And loyalism is, you know, well, it's over. We'll let the uh, famous line, let the police deal with them. And uh, so the, it's, it's hard. One, I'll put it this way. The issue that you're bringing up is the message hasn't gone out into the larger area of what actually went on. Yeah, we as academics and within the loyalist community, people who cared about it were reading it. But outside of that, nobody knows the work we that was the hard work that was done at the coalface to make things different, to make things better, or to end the conflict and to get to the Good Friday Agreement that loyalism actually did. Yeah, I mean, and you're talking about about the seventies and and the political writings. You're, you're specifically talking about the work that was being done inside the cages of Longcash in seventy three, seventy four. Right. When, when when essentially what they had was the Good Friday Agreement on paper. Uh, mm-hmm. Except for it was joint first ministers, I think was, was the actual terminology it was used at that point, rather than first and deputy first. That they were so far ahead of the curve at that point that they frightened people, uh, and that was inevitably brought down by by other unionists who didn't really want to be sharing power with anybody else other than themselves. And and again, we're back to the cycle because that was seventy three. Then we see that there, there's a movement in the 80s, and then we see there's a movement then at the end of the 90s, and we get the Good Friday Agreement. And then we see another movement in in the beginning of the 2000s and through the 2007. But they dropped off again. And, I, and I'm sort of wondering, have they got it within themselves to move forward again, to bring the cycle back around with another batch? And the problem that I have w- with it, Tony, is you talk about before in different speeches about the speech that uh, Gusty Spence made and, and no place for fascists in the UVF was the, yeah. the term that he had. And although the UVF shouldn't really be about it anymore, we're, we're at a piece as such, there shouldn't be any place for fascists within loyalism as a people. It, 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 I mean, Gusty set that out in 73, 74 in a speech and it's been, it's been held up until a point and now post-Brexit, um, we see the the rise of of right wing loyalism as opposed to left wing loyalism, yeah, yeah. Um, and that that plays to me that for me that plays to the stereotyping that is often given around the caricatures they're painted of loyalism that plays to it rather yeah. r- rather than the caricature uh, d- displaying what loyalism is loyalism is actually moving towards a caricature uh, and that's where I have a problem. Do you, can you see the cycle moving again back to the left? I, you know, you know, one would hope, uh, but I don't know the situation in the present, if how that would happen. Um, and the other thing, looking at this, is what's happening with right-wing loyalism in Northern Ireland, to put it in more of a global perspective, is happening in every Western democracy. Um, it's, it's happening all across the Western world. And a lot of it's being driven by the same problems that... Uh, or leading to right-wing loyalism in Northern Ireland. And that is the fear of immigration. That's the fear of cultural dilution. That's the fear of losing your cultural identity. As long as that threat is there, like you look what happened in Dublin just recently, as long as that threat's there, you're going to have people moving to the right rather than actually looking, okay, let's get the bread and butter issues. And this is what we need to do. We need to work on housing, not like, oh, we got to keep all the immigrants out or we got to send them all to Rwanda. We got to work on housing. Let's work on getting jobs. Let's work on uh, getting the NHS back up and running the way it should be. It becomes when your identity is under threat, that takes that takes that or whether it's real or perceived threat. When that's under threat, there's a tendency to go back to the right and dig the heels in and, you know, go back to what we have, we hold. 
So I don't know. Yeah. And as I once said to one group I was talking to, they asked me, well, do you see the future? I said, I'm a historian. I, <laughs> I said, I can't, you know, I can tell you what went wrong. And I can tell you the patterns, but I can't tell you what it's going to end up with. So I'd be hard pressed to see how it would happen in how it's going to change both, not just in Northern Ireland, but across the Western world right now. And as I jokingly always tell my students when they ask me for prognostication, when I was doing Soviet history, I predicted the Soviet Union would never collapse. So take everything I say in prognostication with a grain of salt. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think what you're saying there about the the rise of, of fear of immigration and so on, it's it's the old sort of right wing tactic of distraction. Uh, don't don't look at the actual problem. Here here's a problem that we've manufactured. We've seen it in the rise in the twenties and thirties in Germany, and it's played out across the board. Um, and, and you're saying about the likes of the, I mean, Argentina, uh, yeah. just elected a far right uh, president. So it, it is on the rise. And the other issue that I have with that sentiment is we're worried about immigration, but. If you ask any family in Northern Ireland where their family have went to, it's Canada. It's it's the it's the east coast of the states. It's Australia. We have emigrated. We we have been that that people who have moved. Um, so I I don't see the adversity to to what they're to what they're talking about. And it, we we go back to how we're dealing with immigration as well. We recently had a a, a man who had reported to taking his own life on the Baby Stockholm. Uh, which is the bars that have set up on the coast of England to house illegal immigrants, as they're calling them. Um, he he was a doctor that had written several research papers and that peer reviewed. This this gentleman was a an asset to something. You know, he had an intellect, he had a use, he had a life, he had something to give to our society, and we put him on a barge and we left him in a condition that ultimately ended up with him taking his own life, as is being reported in the press. So. Yeah. But we need to look at what we're actually frightened of. And then we also need to step back and look at what we should be frightened of as opposed to what we are frightened yeah. of. Yeah. yeah. And again, I mean, this is, like I said, uh, as hard as it is, watch the shift to right wing loyalism. Because if you read my book, the, the, I, I, I didn't start out with a purpose, but when you look at the writings and everything I analyze, the, the solution obviously is social democracy. You know, is it so, a social democratic system, which everyone has a role to play in it. And there is not these incredible disparities of wealth. And that's not in, in, a, in a present situation. People who've suffered the most because of globalization and uh, the, you know, the, the rise of the neoliberal states are the ones who are being mobilized or used in a way to, to say, well, no, the problem's immigrants, the problem is you know, women, the problem's gays, the problem's this. It's not about, instead of focusing, well, wait a minute, what happened to our health care? Why do I have to wait 35 months for a hip replacement? Uh, okay, you know, those are the things that need to be dealt with. But in again, I go back and I see it here in the States in, and uh, is in, 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 even on a personal level with people I know is when they fear what they hold dear in terms of their identity there's a tendency to just like, I'm going to hold on to what I have. And I'm, you know, it's these people causing all the trouble. Um, it's, it's not, it's, it's not the economics. It's not this. You just need to work harder. You just need to uh, um, be more moral or be more, you know, read the Bible or whatever. And then you'll be a better person and the world will be a better place. Forget about the stuff that causes people to get upset. So there's, a, you know, and Obama got into a lot of trouble I think it was in 2012 when he was heard off the record of saying, you know, people retreat to their, you know, guns and uh, I forget guns and something else. But there, you know, I'm not saying this, you know, people are doing that specifically, but I'm saying there is when you have a threat to identity, there's a tendency to pull in and go, well, you know, again, to use the old phrase, the old union's phrase, what we have, we hold, not an inch. And how do you break that down? I, I don't know that. I just don't know. It's interesting, Tony, because the point you make there, and it's one myself and Sam have talked about quite a lot, what we have, we hold. And the idea of always being on the defensive, it, it, it means that you you come up with diminishing returns, ultimately. There's no room yeah. for creativity. So for me, the research you did and and the book was really important and really eye-opening um, for people who, who maybe weren't aware of the subject. Because I think Long Cash in particular, 
did give people the breathing space, the thinking space to sort of assess what had happened, how they'd got there. And, you know, the famous line from Gusty, you know, why are you here? You know, yeah. Irvine. And there's two things I'd like to touch on. It's going back to the point you made about being at the wedding and, you know, being asked, sure, loyalists can't read. I have this conversation still with people and it infuriates me, but I'm also at the stage of my life. I mean, Paul has said to me a few times, look, Gareth, is this the hill you want to die on? Having these conversations <laughs> with people, it must be exhausting. And it is, you get to the stage where you're just like, look, let people wallow in their ignorance because, but, but, but two things I'd like to talk about, and it relates to long cash and that breathing space and the idea of progressive loyalism. Now, the idea that loyalists can't read is, um, completely contradicted by the letter in combat. I think that you're aware of, Mm -hmm. And that we'll post on the thread when this podcast comes out. But basically, it's a letter um, asking people to contact Jim McDonald or Jackie Hewitt in the Loyalist Prisoners Welfare Association because prisoner students attached to the UVF Red Hand compounds at Long Cash urgently require books on the following subjects. And I'm not going to list them all, but just to give people an idea. Works by or about W.B. Yeats, George Bernard Shaw, John Milton Singe, um, Lady Gregory, uh, Keats Wordsworth, Social sciences, works dealing with general sociology, social structure, criminology, philosophy, religion, works with, uh, about existentialism, particularly uh, Kierkegaard, Heidegger, um, Sartre, journals and magazines dealing with education, sociology, politics, current affairs, physical culture and philosophy. Now, that's black and white. That's there from the 1970s. That yeah. proves that there were loyalist prisoners reading and educating themselves. Um, so it's not just anecdotal, it's actually there from the time. The other thing I want to touch on, which you, I, I find it really interesting that you raised awareness of it, because I'd come across it when I was doing the PhD and mentioned it briefly, but you really elaborated on within the context of Northern Ireland, uh, the Red Hand document. C- can you talk a wee bit about that and how that really, as far as I remember, was the first document of, prog- well, it was one of the first documents of progressive loyalism, really. You're talking about within the context of Northern Ireland? Yes. Okay. Um, and I said, yeah, I mean, when I was doing, so like what it meant to me or what, uh, uh, what, what specific year, or do you want me to talk about it on that one? Or? Basically, it was highlighting the fact that there's just breathing space and long cash. People are asking for reading materials and they're coming up with ideas like within the context of Northern Ireland. I, I think it's important because in your book, you give that thinking from within the red hand and let's call a spade a spade. It was plum. It was Flint. It was people like that who were coming up with these ideas. Young men who had just been shortly before that arrested for attempted sectarian killing. were now in long cash in that space where they were actually developing quite radical ideas about the politics of great Britain at the time and Northern Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right about the breathing space. I mean, and this is where they, it, you got away from the bullets and the gun, the bombs, as I think Plum once told me. Uh, you had the time to think. You had the time to say, uh, like follow Gusty's lead and start to think. Well, why the hell did I end up in here in the first place? Okay, what were my life circumstances that led me into here? And it, it gave me time to think. And there was, you know, from my understanding, is they uh, on the outside there was people like Hugh Smith, David Bleakley uh, from the NILP. Um, Unfortunately, before he died, uh, oh, God, he was a Methodist minister from Woodville Church. John, John Stewart. John Stewart, John, yeah, yeah. John Stewart, who was trying to get people, the uh, UVF on the outside, to start taking on bread and butter issues. So you had that kind of going back and forth from inside the compounds to, you know, the people on the outside and getting the information back in. But this is where, I guess, yeah, this is where uh, the problem arises again, why the thing's not really changed. So you had those guys like inside Long Cash doing all this amazing work, working with people like Huey Smith and Jim McDonald and uh, John Stewart. But it wasn't going anywhere else. It was like basically the the like outside. I remember I remember reading. I think uh, Roy Garland talked about it. They became known as the Red Brigade or the hard hard men who'd gone soft. You know, because they were thinking about this. And if I think Garland pointed out in one case, when they sent a document out to the UVF and the outside, they sent it back. They wrote F off on it. 
and uh, and sent it back into them. So it was all well and good to have all this going on outside, inside the prison, but it wasn't happening on the outside. And the other problem, and I think was pointed out to me by one uh, person one time, is for all the good stuff that they were doing inside the prisons, and Gusty was leading, is what they were doing was putting all this great information that could have been could have ended the conflict years earlier if other people had been prepared for it. But as this one person pointed out to me, and I can't use their name, is uh, but at the end of the day, Gusty was all the way down at the end of the hallway, and the rest of the organization was still sitting here. So he was no longer leading anymore. And because, yeah, he's got all these great ideas, but the organization hadn't come with them and the people that they were trying to reach hadn't come with them. And that was always a serious problem. And even probably, you know, think about the flag protests in 2012, 2013, the PUP had a massive influx of membership. And I remember Billy had asked me and Aaron Edwards to put together education programs for the new members. And well, what ended up happening was the idea was socialize them into the history of the PUP and the progressive loyalism. And then that way, the PUP would keep moving in that social democratic direction. But what ended up, as you well know, what ended up happening, it actually, the opposite happened. Those who joined the party joined it because of the flag protest and defending identity, and they moved them to the right wing. They moved the party more to the right than they than it was, and they were going to the left at that point. Yeah, I think if we're talking about the work that the PUP have done and and shown again that us loyalists can actually read, write, and hold a pen, you need to be looking at Mitchell's loyalist uh, principles as well. I mean, he started it in the seventies and didn't get it printed in the two thousand and two, but. I'm just looking at a copy of it here. I mean, the first thing that it talks about is the material well-being of Ulster, and that was mm-hmm. everybody. So the principle, the first principle that you put down in paper is about looking after society as a whole on an, on an equal basis, and it shows how progressive they actually were. And then followed up that up with civil and religious freedom and equal citizenship. I mean, these guys were were progressive in the truest form, um, yeah. and but they're still seen as ne- Neanderthals. Uh, thugs, drug dealers, corrupt criminals, uh, and all the other terminology that we throw at them. Um, we need to be we need to be given giving them a bit more credit. And and I'll I'll sort of put a clause in that that I know they did some horrible things, you know, yeah. in, in the name of loyalism. And I'm the first to put my hand up and say I know these guys and I know what they were capable of. Um, so we're not going to hide away from that. I'm not here. I'm not here as a fan club for certain individuals saying that what they did was saint-like and they didn't have a past. But what, but what I am saying is it was a past. Yep. They learned from that, and what they learned was there was a better way of doing things, and they got there. And, and I think when Gusty said the words "true" and "abject remorse," it was heartfelt. It ca- it came from a, a good place and a, a an honest place within loyalism at that point that they knew they had carried out atrocities. And they weren't going to shy away from the fact that they had, and they were apologizing to the best the best way they could. Yeah, but I but it's never been actually accepted. I don't think I don't think anybody's actually thought to themselves they actually meant it, and we'll we will move on from this. I think it's still the words were said, but nobody listened. Yeah, I mean, and it's exactly. I mean, um, when Gusty did say that, I, mean, I still have the documentary from Peter Taylor is Gusty asked, or he asked Gus, Taylor asked him, well, why did you say that? He said it was the most logical and most humane thing to say. Uh, every, everyone everyone has to say it to, it to each other. Society has to say it to society. Everyone has to do true and abject remorse. It's the only humane thing to do. I've got it almost memorized. Um, but yeah, but again, this goes back to the thing I said earlier. We're not, we're not operating in a bubble, but what we're saying doesn't actually get out into the larger population. Now, why doesn't that happen? One, you can argue, is it doesn't fit. It's, it's, a, it's an inconvenient truth, uncomfortable narratives people don't want to do, listen to. And, but it also suits, um, you know, other people's narratives or what they want to accomplish politically to say, right, these are the bad guys. These are the, these are the, this is like the uncle with three eyes that we have locked away in the attic and let's keep them there. And not acknowledge what they've done. Yeah, and so there, 
I mean, you look at um, even when Gusty died, like David had this massive funeral, and you were talking about the uh, uh, the way he was viewed in, in comparison to Gusty. Like when Gusty died, that tended to be within the loyalist community. When Davy died, that brought in everybody. Now, why? Wait, because Gusty. I mean, when you think about it, Gusty was. We don't have Davy without Gusty. Okay, so why? Why is that different? Okay, and the argument would be because Gusty killed was allegedly killed people, and Davy uh, was you know didn't kill anyone, or allegedly didn't kill anyone. Um, so yeah, I mean it's a hard it's a hard nut to crack, and I don't know if we're ever going to crack it. I mean, uh, you know, and I'll give you an example here from my own experiences teaching, as uh, when I do my Northern Ireland class or when I've done community talks. And there, you know, I said, well, my background, everything. And I go, all right, how many of you out in the audience have ever heard of Bloody Sunday? And every hand goes up. How many of you have ever heard of Bloody Friday? Not one hand goes up. And then I ask, okay, why? And I explain what it is. I go, all right, why have you never heard of this? And then they have to start looking into like where they get the information, what type of information is actually put out there, and why it's out there in a different ways. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know how you get the story out in a wider audience, uh, because it was a bit of a shock to me when I was at this wedding, because I kind of just assume, oh, everybody knows my story. The book did really well in Northern Ireland. And then I ran into people who had absolutely no idea what I had written and didn't even know I wrote a book. And, you know, so you think, oh, yeah, I got this story out. And but it didn't. It didn't go out. It it didn't enter popular consciousness is the way, I guess, is the best way of putting it. I think, though, I mean, to, to be fair, it, it got a good review from Unfold Black, which, which was, yes, you know, I mean, that that's massive. <laughs> I think it was Mitchell McLaughlin, as far as you yeah, remember. Mitchell McLaughlin did the essay. Yeah. Yeah, so it was like you know at least they're conceding that there was a strain of loyalism, and um, right. but I, I find that really interesting because I I'd, I'd feel the same about um, some of the work I've done, particularly the Tartan Gangs book. But I also feel, and I don't know if you experienced this, Tony, and we've talked about it. Me and Bino have done a lot of work on it with the belts and boots stuff, where we've gone out to different community centres. He's done the poetry and the drama with John Travers, and I've done a, a bit of the you know reading from my research and we've been telling people look if you don't want um your story to be forgotten if you don't want the narrative to be unbalanced you have to tell your story whether that's journaling for yourself or keeping it for your family or if you want to publish something like nor meekly serve my time but there there doesn't seem to be that buy-in do you have any feelings about that did you have any experience of 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 people being resistant to telling their story when you were um, doing the oh, research? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> yeah, people ask me, did you go over, what, when did you go over to the other side? I mean, I got that question. Uh, it strained some friendships that I'd had for years um, who didn't want the story told or, you know, just thought I was going, you know, again, humanizing the inhuman. Uh but yeah, there was there was a, there was resistance from people I knew for doing it, and people uh, yeah, and I people even here were like that I knew from the Irish American community who were very involved in it were very resistant to it until they read the book, and then they were shocked. And then, but yeah, there was uh, a number of people had a lot of people people I had very close with had difficulty with the book over the years. Many of them have come to accept it, and they were you know read the book and took took it on board but yeah there was there was not i, I wouldn't call i was really well supported in terms of uh people wanting me or people thinking i should be doing this but and in terms again, of, yeah but even in terms in terms ahead, of people yeah but in terms of people i'm, I'm thinking about t the loyalist story and people telling that story as well did you find it was difficult because i mean you got some fantastic interviews it's it's there in the appendix but did yeah. you find that there were stories that were important that you would love to have had in the book, but people just either weren't motivated to tell their story. They didn't want to raise their head above the parapet or just didn't want to be in the public, public realm. Did you find that? No, I didn't have any problem with that. I mean, cause I, my focus, you know, because I, cause of my work situation, which I didn't, you know, I couldn't take a sabbatical to write or research. 
is I, you know, had to narrow the focus down into the, the political analysis. So my interviews were really focused around the people that were involved in that. And they were, uh, everybody was pretty well on board with it. The hardest one in, um, uh, was, you know, with one person, I won't use a name, uh, uh, who basically grilled me for an hour and a half before he would allow me to interview him. Um, and, you know, basically put me through the ringer in terms of what, what was my purpose? Why did I want to do it? What was I looking at? What was my thesis to this point? And then at the end of the hour and a half, then uh, was OK with me doing the interview. Well, at least you got an interview with that person because I didn't. <laughs> but I, I had plenty of good conversations over a pint of harp, but never, never actually got anything on tape. But that's the way it rolls. Look, Gareth, yeah, that's it. I said I'll talk to you later on, okay? Don't worry. Yeah. We'll, get to, we'll get to the interview. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, basically, that would be, you know, but, that, but no, I mean, never had a problem because I was never delving into the, the bad stuff. It was like, okay, the political stuff. What helped you? You know, why did you go this direction? And, but again, the other, this is where situations change. Uh, what would it have been like within two years of me trying to do the same book? After the Moffat killing, and then the uh, uh, the Boston College tapes and the flag protest, because as you all well, both well, I mean things just closed down. People didn't want to talk after that. So I was fortunate in the period that I was doing it in, but I think it was also because of the topic where I was going with things. I didn't have a difficulty with people uh, talking to me. Yeah, I think me and Garth will. We'll talk about this all day and bang that drum about people telling their stories and the amount of times we get stopped and said, you should tell our story, you should, you should do this for us. And you say, okay, come on ahead and we'll record. And they go, no, no, not me. Get somebody yeah. else. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing. Nobody else can tell your story. So if you want to come and tell your story, you've got to do it. And and I, and I on the other side, I do know that why they don't raise their head above the parapet sometimes. We, we see people who do step forward and whether you like them or not, there are there are commentators that there are people who are active in social media and they they do voice their opinion they they dare to speak out and they're lambasted and they're yeah. hounded and and so you can see why people are sort of resistant to coming forward why they hide sometimes um and I think they're looking for a proxy to do it for yeah. them but it can't always be done like that unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said, you know, I talk, joke with my students again is, you know, and like my friend, you know, uh, Gareth, you know, Aaron Henson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she comes yeah. in and does a lecture every semester for my class about loyalism, art in the prisons and everything. And we always jokingly tell the kids, students is, look, if you're looking for a career in academia, you don't want to be studying loyalism. OK, because <laughs> it's not going to get you anywhere. Um, yeah, and and it's true. I mean, it's like people. Um, I have one friend. I mean, this is kind of tangent, but it ties together. A friend of mine who's actually in his forties. He's a teacher in here in the United States, and he's totally fascinated by loyalism and wants to study it. So he actually went to one of the major universities here in the United States that does our studies and had an interview with the faculty head of the de department, and he said. <laughs> First thing they said is your name doesn't suggest uh, somebody who would be interested in loyalism because of his name. Two, we don't know anybody in the United States that studies loyalism. <laughs> and so who are you going to work with? And so and it was funny because Aaron always joked, you know, well, I, you know, we introduce each other. Well, he's a leading expert on loyalism and, and politics. He's a leading expert on loyalist prison art. Well, the reason is we're the experts in America because we're the only two that have done it. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and it, so, uh, to tie this back to what we're talking about, you know, most people, when they would come over from the States or anywhere else, they're studying republicanism. They're studying the, the IRA, the, the anti-colonial, anti-imperial narrative, the struggle. And to step over and do this, it's like, would be going, you know, saying, well, uh, in, in a sense for most people here and even in Northern Ireland would be you're studying the bad guys. You know, you're, these, you know, you shouldn't be get in a sense. You're talking, Sam, you're talking about get, letting the narratives out. We don't want to hear these narratives. We don't. These narratives aren't worth hearing because they were the bad guys. They were the oppressors. They were this. They were that. And so that 
locks out of a narrative. If even when you try to get the good narrative out there, it's well, you know that yeah, maybe one or two of these people talk could, can do that, but um, you know it's it's not we it's, it's not worth listening to it. From one of a better way to put it. Well, actually, what what I find research and loyalism, and again, you know. Like like your friend, not not being somebody who you traditionally associate with, uh, want to research that. But you know what what I find was goes back to the Peter Taylor documentary you mentioned earlier. The stories that you're hearing from people are authentic. They're not they're not carrying a party line. They're they're talking off their own bat. And also, I mean, I've made some good friends with people I never thought I would ever talk to in my life. And Sam would be you know one of those people who yeah. I mean. Tangentially, I've met met Sam because of my research, and that's set me up with a friend for life. Um, all, all you know, I'm I'm probably like yourself, Tony. I'm probably never going to really write on loyalism again. I'm still yeah. interested in it, but I sure as hell remember the generosity that was shown to me by people who, yeah, I'm going to be honest. I might have been frightened to approach in in in, in years gone by. You know, in in the past. Um, and I'm sure, you know, if we were living in a different time, they would have wanted to do me harm, but we're in a different place now and we we'll have to sort of judge people on the effort they've made to get to where they are. And right. I I can't say anything critical about loyalism or the loyalist community or the people I've worked with because, um, and you know, I'd certainly advocate that other people go out and continue that research and, and, and yeah. take the step. The only thing I would warn about is I think with some people there is a level of fatigue, you know, yeah. and it, co- it comes from that idea of people coming in and doing research and then just disappearing and not investing in the community and not reporting back what they find and, and co- co- co-producing the research, basically. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. I mean, the parachute, uh, uh, you know, researchers who do their research go home and that's the last you ever hear of them. Yeah. And as you were speaking, as Sam brought and I, I, I got anecdotes coming out of my head and I just thought of one uh, years about getting the narrative out and why it's so difficult. I was doing a talk, I think it was maybe 2012. Uh, uh, I won't say where, but I was doing a talk. And at the end, we went into the bar area and started having a pint. We're having a discussion. And one of the people asked me, why is it so difficult for loyalism to get its story out to the rest of the world? And one of the guys that was there was pretty, he was right on the money. He says, I'll tell you why. He says every time something happened on the Falls Road, they'd invite them into the house. They the reporters into the house. They say, "Look at this. Here's the you know here's what they've done. There's this, that, and the other." He says, "And what the f did we do? Says, they'd come up on the shankle, we'd burn their cars." Okay, <laughs> and so there was this sort of it, it, for many years, you know, the fear of the outside because the fear was. You know, if you're an American, you're coming in to tell a bad story about us. You're not coming in to hear our story. You're coming in here to shape the story that you want to write when you get back home. And so, yeah, there was so there is a legitimate fear within the community of like, okay, how are you going to present us? You know, what are you going to tell about a story? I've had the same experience you've had, Gara, and so I totally agree with it. But for many people, still, it's like. You know, you're just going to you're going to come in here. You're going to you're going to do this information. You're going to get home and you're just going to make us look bad. You know, you're going to tell this other story. So there would be a natural reluctance for years of actually organizing like politically to get, a, a, you know, a propaganda, not a propaganda, but a publicity machine out there to tell the story that just never happened. Yeah, I think the other thing that we had a problem with through the years was. We didn't want to seem unfaithful to. To, to Britain, to our union, to, to the people who were supposedly in charge of our country, even though we were second-class citizens as well, when the shankle was never an affluent part of it. Um, you didn't want to seem to be running down the British side. You didn't want to let your own side down. So you couldn't bring people in and say, look, we're living in two up, two down houses too. Yep. Our toilet's still in the back garden as well. We don't have jobs. We don't, we're getting let down by education. Our life expectancy is, is 20 years less than other unionists in other areas because of where we live and our, the lifestyle that we were forced to lead. We, we are badly underfunded and we don't have the resources we need to, to develop as a community. Um, there's things going on at the like Bill Shankle where they're showing the deprivation and the, and the lack of development in the Shankle area alone. But on the other hand, we didn't want to tell anybody that because that was it was like um, it was like the, the family secret. You couldn't tell anybody outside the family. 
we can sit and bitch about it in the Rangers, but we didn't want to tell the rest of the street what was going on. So over a pint with your mates, you can sit and bitch about it all day long. But the outsiders, you had to hold, they had to hold the line and show the same face as everybody else. And that Britain was working for everybody, and look, we're doing all right. Where really you were going home and you had nothing. Um, yeah, yeah it, it, that that didn't help our cause at all because we should have at that point been speaking out, especially around the civil rights as well. We should have been speaking out. And it goes back to what both of you were saying earlier about putting your head above the parapet, because if you had done that, you would have been a rotten prod. And, you know, and, uh, you know, you sold out your community. You're one of the you're one of them. It's OK. You're talking socialism. You want to be a Republican. OK. Um, no. And during that period, again, you, you couldn't criticize. And because for exactly the reasons you're talking about. Yeah, and I think the word you you haven't said there was Lundy. You get that. But Rotten Pride was always the one that stuck in my head from the uh, over the years. Okay. Well, look, Tony, I think we've probably taken up enough of your time tonight. Um, you know, really appreciate it. Uh, you've been a big supporter of me in particular. I appreciate that, and you know, you've oh. supported myself and Sam recently with Shrapnel. And I know you're not planning on doing any more work on loyalism but i hope people continue to buy your book it's widely available still and i recommend that anybody who doesn't know about political loyalism picks up northern iron's lost opportunity it's published by pluto press i think it's well it's past its 10th anniversary now it's coming up to 11 years years, 10 11 years next month yeah yeah which and it's it's not in the bargain basement either i I was my biggest fear was gonna end up in a bargain the two for a pound bin within like six months (laughs) no and my copy i'm just looking at it here it'll only increase in value because you're uh wrote a really lovely message in it as well and you know as i say it'll be something to give to my daughter when when i pass on and she'll have it with stuff being signed for me and all the other people i've met along the way and Hopefully she'll cherish it for years to come as well. So, you know, as a historian, you've done a lot of, you know, important work over here in Northern Ireland and you're done a lot of work to balance the narrative. And I know for me as somebody, as a historian and academic, I really appreciate it. And I'm sure, I don't want to speak for Sam, but I'm sure he'll agree that for the loyalist community, you know, you've done a lot of heavy lifting as well for, for people like Sam who want to promote that message as well. Yeah, you mean you certainly have, Tony. I mean, you've, you've, you've given people a chance to see us, whether they want to see it or not, you've given people that chance. And I'd also say that if you're living in the loyalist community and you haven't read Tony's book, you need to go and read it because it's also a way to find out about where we have come from and how we have developed and ended up where we were. So for the outside world, yeah, please come and have a look, read, learn about us. But for within my own community, go and have a look at the book. And and you may not agree with everything in it and you may may question some of it, but that's what it's about. Read it, question it, develop your own thought process. That's what they did in the cages in Cash. Um, they, they they were challenged and they had to read things that were outside their scope and what they weren't comfortable with. And that's the only way, as humans, we grow. We 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 look at other narratives and we look at other points of view. And I think I think that's what we need to be doing more of. So, Tony, thank you for coming along tonight. Um, we're going to let Gareth go and prepare for maybe the next twenty four hours. Um, happiness <laughs> bef- before Forrest get absolutely humped tomorrow night. Um. <laughs> Maybe they'll give me a Christmas surprise and um, <laughs> win oh. for once. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm actually just got notification that it's two each in the Rangers game, so uh, my nerves will be shot for the next 45 minutes as well. Um, <laughs> I've, but, I've got no football match tonight, so I'm good. <laughs> you Liverpool? I'm a Liverpool guy, yeah. 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 And, you, and my, my team in the MLS Major League Soccer here, they just won the championship. Uh, they just won the championship last week in Columbus. Is that Columbus Crew? Yeah, they they yeah. won last week. They won the league last week. Brilliant. So that was my so that was my big day. Okay, yeah. well, that, I have to thank you guys for this opportunity. And uh, yeah, it was really fun to talk about it because yeah, I'm not doing any. Yeah, I, I don't have to. I'm 71 years old now, and uh, I don't have all the energy to be doing this all the time. And uh, so, but I keep on top of all the reading, and I follow everything you know constantly. But as I jokingly said in uh, my book launch at the University of Pittsburgh, to paraphrase Scarlett O'Hara uh, in Gone with the Wind, as God is my witness, I will never write again. <laughs> uh, I think Gareth said that after the Tartans and then look what happened. So well, you, you never know what comes around the corner. Yeah, exactly. Well, thanks so much for this opportunity. It was great to see you guys. Thank thanks, you, Tony. Tony. Appreciate it. All right. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. 
Hi, folks. It's me again, Sam McElwain, your host. Just want to say thanks for listening and for all the support you've given us over this journey. Um, if you can, join us on Patreon. There's a lot more content on there from our sister podcasts. Um, wherever you get your podcast from, give us a five-star rating. It's the way we get this conversation out there. You tell your friends, give us a review. And if you want to reach out with anything you want, feedback, or if you want to have a chat with us on air, um, we're, we're on shrapnelpodcast at gmail.com or you have us on Twitter. And up, we're going to do an upcoming Christmas special. Uh, and when we do that, we'd like to have a few more voice notes. There's a couple come in there, but if you have anything to say, you want your voice on, on shrapnel for our end of year roundup, send it in to us. You can either email it in to us or again, you can, you can send it in through the Twitter messaging service. Thanks very much, folks. Stay with us. We're, we're doing what we do because you're out there. You're listening. Thank you.